0: Thank you. Good morning. Uh, we're talking about preparedness. This is the season of Advent. Did you know that the season of Advent is, are the four Sundays before Christmas, and we are to prepare our hearts for the coming of Jesus, prepare ourselves, we're to wait and to wait expectantly. And the way, one of the ways we are doing that as a church this month as we are drawing this analogy between a christmas tree we make such a big deal about our christmas trees and we want to make them beautiful and hide the bald spots and hide the, the you know the bad spots and drawing that analogy to jesus's own family tree and as ross said to us last week that where we would hide some of the things in our family tree jesus highlights those things uh, And it reminded me a little bit, frankly, of my childhood. When I grew up, we had two Christmas trees. I wonder if anybody else can relate to this. We had two Christmas trees. There was the one that only my mother was permitted to decorate. Anybody else? Well, exquisite. Like if Time Magazine did Christmas trees of the year, my mother's tree would have won every year. And not surprisingly, it was right in the front room. So, anybody who came into the house, anybody who drove by, they saw the most gorgeous, gorgeously decorated, exquisite, perfect Christmas tree for everyone to see. As a kid, by the way, for me, it was totally unapproachable. But we had a second tree. And that second tree was not in the front room in front of the big window, decorated beautifully. Instead, that was the tree that the kids got to decorate and it was decorated with homemade crafts okay who remembers construction paper chains going around the tree you made those in school it was, it was pretty much it was it was decorated with things that we created in art class were the the construction paper stars do you remember those and then you could put glue on them and then you put glitter on top of that and you poke the hole. Do you remember all those things? And if you're really artistic, you could do the pine cones. Same thing, a little bit of glue, a little bit of glitter, hang the pine cones. That Christmas tree did not end up in the front room where everybody could see it. That Christmas tree was in the basement (laughs) where nobody went. The only time an adult went into the basement was when my mom went down there to do laundry. And I called her yesterday, and I said, Mom, were you embarrassed of the tree? that we saw? She said, I was not embarrassed of that tree. No, I was not embarrassed of that tree. I'm like, Mom, I'm pretty sure you were embarrassed of that tree. Because <laughs> one was in the front room in the window, and one was in the basement. Well, in this sermon series of Advent, we're going to talk about the people in Jesus's family tree who weren't in the front room. We're going to talk about the folks who kind of got stashed away, stowed away in the basement. And last week, Ross talked about Judah and Tamar, and he said something that was just so profound. I I wrote it down. He said, uh, Jesus makes outsiders to be insiders. And I don't think that is any more true than with Ruth the Moabite, Ruth the Moabite. And this morning, we're going to look at uh, Ruth, who is in the genealogy of our Lord Jesus Christ. So if you are able, I'm going to invite you to stand, and I'm going to read through the first few verses of Matthew chapter 1, where the genealogy of Jesus appears. And if you have your Bibles, I'm going to ask you to open them, and, before, and, and as you do that, let's go ahead and pray. Lord, we welcome you here. We ask you, Lord, to come in power, that we might see you at work in the most subtle ways, that you might come and transform us this Christmas season, that you might come and transform us today. And if there is someone here, Lord, who does not know you, let this be the day that they enter into your family. And for those who do know you, Lord God, I pray that they would be encouraged, they would be strengthened, and they would know that they would know that they would know that you are a great and awesome God who makes outsiders to be insiders. Speak through me this morning, I ask, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're going to go ahead and read Matthew chapter 1, the first few verses. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, that's who we learned about last week, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Aminadab, and Aminadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, who we'll learn about this morning, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David the king. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. All right, I'm going to give you a little bit of roadmap about what we're going to do this morning. Uh, The first thing I'm going to do is I'm going to give you the historical context for when Ruth was alive. I think it is incredibly important when we're studying God's Word that we remember that these are real people, that they lived during real times, and they had real events in their lives. And I want to focus a little bit on what the times were like when this lady, Ruth, was alive. Then I'm going to do a sort of a 64,000 foot view of the book of Ruth, a summary of it. And I would love to do it line by line by line. Uh, we don't have time for that this morning. I'm sure you're, you're glad about that. I, I, on the other hand, am not. And then finally, uh, I want to focus on the significance of Ruth and her, of her role in the history of the people of God and why it is that she is highlighted in the genealogy of our Lord Jesus Christ and how that is a real testimony, like a billboard uh, 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 sort of announcing the grace of God. All right, so if you have your Bibles with you, I want you to turn to the book of Ruth, and we're going to start with a historical context, and to start with the historical context, we're going to start with the first verse of Ruth. It's Ruth chapter one, verse one. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land And a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. All right, in the days when the... By the way, I'm going to keep walking over here. Can you hear that creak when I stand right here? Is that reminding you of anything, Nancy, that you don't like very much? Um, Our old home. Um, In the days when the judges ruled the land... There was a time in the history of God's people, in the history of Israel, called the Judges. And there's a book of Judges, and it's the book right before the book of Ruth. But we're going to even draw back a little further than that. We're going to go all the way back to the book of Genesis when there was a man named Abraham. And later on, you're going to understand why I'm going through with this level of detail. There was a man named Abraham, and God called him up from the land where he lived. And he said, I want you to leave this land. I want you to leave your kin. And I want, to go, I want you to go to a place that I'm going to show you. And that's why we call it the promised land, the dirt, the real estate that God promised to give to Abraham and his descendants. Abraham didn't exactly follow God's call, though. It says that he was to leave his kin, but he didn't leave all of his kin. He took his nephew. What's his nephew's name? Lot. He took Lot with him. All right. But Abraham eventually has a son named Isaac. Isaac has a son named Jacob. By the way, Jacob, and we're going to use this interchangeably this morning, and Israel are one and the same person. God changed the name of Jacob to Israel, and the name Israel comes to represent the territory, the land, the nation of Israel that we're going to talk about in just a bit. So Abraham has Isaac, Isaac has Jacob, and Jacob is in the promised land, but there's a famine and because there's a famine, he and all of his family leave the promised land and they go down to Egypt only to discover Jacob's long lost son named Joseph, who they all thought was dead. Joseph, who is, who has ascended to be the number two ruler in all of Egypt, who has enabled them through visions that he got from God to prepare Egypt for the famine. And so that they had food and all Israel, Jacob, and all of his family, they come down there and they live. But then Joseph dies, and when Joseph dies, the people of Egypt forget all that Joseph had done for them, and they start to resent and hate and fear all of these Israelites who were living in Egypt, and they enslave them. And after hundreds of years, God raises up a man named Moses to lead them out of Egypt. Remember they, with many miracles, and they cross the Red Sea. they they get into the wilderness and God says, go up to that land. I'm taking you up to the promised land right now. They send out spies, 12 spies. The spies come back with a report. Two of them say, oh my goodness, that land is awesome. Let's go get that real estate. And 10 are afraid. And they say, to to take that land, we're going to have to go into battle and we're going to die and our kids are going to die. It's going to be horrible. Let's not do it they didn't obey God. They didn't follow God's command. And so God has them wandering in the wilderness for 40 years. And just as they're on the cusp of finally, after that 40-year period of entering into this promised land, Moses dies. But God had raised up another man named Joshua. Joshua. And Joshua, under his leadership, the Israelites move into this promised land, and they conquer territory, and they conquer tribes, they conquer the foreigners who are in, the, in that territory. And when they do, God had said, clean it out, clean everything out. They were able to secure the territory, but they were not able to drive out all of the people, all of the foreigners. And that, it turns out, is not so great For the Israelite people. Because Joshua, at the beginning of the book of Judges, this book right before Ruth, is going to die. And when he dies, there's a crisis. In fact, about seven times, maybe more than that, but I counted seven in the book of Judges, it says after Joshua died that the people did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. They stopped following God. When they lost their leader, they stopped following God. And I want to describe for you just a list of evils so you get a sense of what this culture is. And I want you to particularly hone in on this. The more things change, the more they stay the same. Listen to some of the, the, the characteristics of this particular culture at that time in the promised land, the land that God had promised to give to his people Israel. Oh my goodness, it was violent. A lot of violence. There was this unbelievable level of distrust and hostility among the tribes of Israel. And the tribes of Israel, there's nothing mysterious about this. This is the family, Israel's children and grandchildren, are the tribes of Israel. So Judah was a son of Israel, and there's the tribe of Judah. Does that make sense? You tracking? All right. Unbelievable. These, are, these folks are all related, although as years go past, the relations are, get more and more distanced, but they're all related in the hostility and the unbelief or the, the distrust between them and the violence between them is remarkable. Go back and you can read the book of Judges and see this marital infidelity, sexual perversion, political intrigue, and fights for power. Sounding familiar, right? It's either a soap opera or it's the, the, morning, the morning newspaper. Take, take, take your pick. Political intrigue and fights for power, it's a pluralistic culture. Remember, they were able to secure the territory but not drive out everyone. There were many religions and religious practices and God's people began to abandon him. In fact, in Judges chapter 8, it says that his people did not remember the Lord and they whored after other gods. And it is in that context that Ruth begins. And we're going to do a, a high-level summary of the book of Ruth. In the days when the judges ruled there, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. Okay, so there's a famine, and this man, his name is Elimelech, and his wife Naomi realized they need to eat their kids need to eat. And they, would, they did what probably you and I would do. When there was a famine in the land, they got up and they left. But it wasn't like they went from Frisco down to Houston or Texas to Washington, D.C. They went to Moab. Moab is a different country. And if you're thinking about this geographically, if you have the nation of Israel here, you have the Dead Sea right here, and Moab right here on the other side of the Dead Sea. It's sort of like east-southeast from Judah. And this man Elimelech and his wife Naomi take their two sons and they go down there to find work, to find food, to sustain themselves. And they're down there for about 10 years. And while they are there, some really significant things happen. Elimelech, the father, dies. The two sons of Elimelech and Naomi They marry Moabite girls. They don't marry Israelite girls, which is what they were supposed to do. They marry Moabite girls. And then those two young men also die. So Naomi, who came from Judah, Bethlehem in Judah, you know, we just sang about Bethlehem this morning, who came from Bethlehem in Judah, she left with a a husband and two sons, and she's left left with no husband and no sons, and two Moabite girls as daughters-in-law. When she gets, she realizes that she is on her own pretty much. She has no husband to take care of her. She has no sons to provide for her. Very significant in that culture. And she goes to work and she starts to work in a field. And while she's working in the field, she hears that God has come back to her homeland of Judah. God has come back to Bethlehem. So she says, I am going back to my homeland. And she says to her two daughters-in-law, I'm going home. I'm going home, I want you to stay. Go back to your mother, you stay here, stay with your people, stay in your religion, I am going back. And there's weeping, and there's this beautiful scene that really depicts the great love between this woman and her daughters-in-law. By the way, not always the relationship, right, that we would expect, and it's certainly not the relationship you would expect between an Israelite woman, uh, mother-in-law and her two Moabite daughters-in-law. But But Naomi is insistent, you are not coming back with me. Absolutely, under no circumstances are you coming back with me. And one of the daughters-in-law gets up and goes back to her family. And we never hear from her again. But the other daughter-in-law, you guessed her name, is Ruth. And Ruth utters these words that are probably the most famous words of this entire book. She says this to her mother-in-law. Do not, this is in chapter 1, verse 16, do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go, and where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God my God. Where you die, I will die, and there will I be buried. This beautiful indication of commitment and loyalty that Ruth shows to her mother-in-law. And so together, they go back to Bethlehem. They go in Judah. Even though Naomi didn't want her to come, they go back together to Judah. And they get there, and people recognize Naomi, and she's miserable. She's absolutely miserable. And she says, don't call me Naomi anymore, which means pleasant. Call me Mara, which means bitter, for the Lord's hand, the Almighty's hand, has been against me. Ruth is just a wonderful woman, and we're going to see that in just a little bit. She sets out to begin to provide for herself and for her mother-in-law, Naomi. She goes out into a field to glean. Do you know what to glean means? Do you know what God had done for poor people at that time? It's an agricultural society. What he said was, when you were harvesting your crops, you you and your servants went through your fields to harvest your crops, you couldn't take everything. You had to leave some. And the reason you had to leave some is so you could make provision for the poor who could come after you, even if they weren't from that country, so that they could come after you and pick up essentially the leftovers, and they could provide for themselves. And that's exactly what Ruth was doing. And while she's doing this, it just so happened, that's the language of the scriptures, it just so happens that she is in a field owned by a man named Boaz. And Boaz sees her, and he says to his young man who works for him, hey, who's that? And the young man says, that's the Moabite girl. doesn't say her name. That's the Moabite girl who came back from Moab with Naomi. Did I mention that she was from Moabite, the Moabite girl? She's from Moab. She came back with Naomi. That's who that is. And listen to what Boaz does in something really remarkable. And even listen to the the gentleness and the beauty and the softness and the comfort in his words. He says this in chapter 2, beginning at verse 8. Then Boaz said to Ruth, now listen, My daughter, do not go to glean in another field or leave this one, but keep close to my young women. Let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping and go after them. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? I don't want to pause there just for a second on the word touch, not to touch you. I think typically as Westerners and the kind of culture in which we live, the first way we think about touch is in a sexual, physical sense, And then he might be protecting her from a sexual assault. Well, touch in that context does mean that, but it also means a beating. It also means a beating. And so Boaz is trying to protect her from the young men. And when you are thirsty, go to the vessels and drink what the young men have drawn. Then she fell on her face, bowing to the ground, and said to him, Why have I found favor in your eyes that you should take notice of me since I am a foreigner? In verse 11, Boaz answers her, all that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me. And how you left father and mother in your native land and came to a people that you did not know before. And then get this, he prays for her. Right there, he blesses her. Listen to what he says. The Lord repay you for what you have done, and a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings, make a mental note of that word, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. And then she says, I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, for you have comforted me and spoken kindly to your servant, though I am not one of your servants. She just calls herself a foreigner. and She can't understand why it is that he was so good to her. Well, he actually gets better to her, too. He feeds her that day. And then he goes and he tells his boys who are working for him, make sure you leave plenty for that young woman so that she can take that home to her mother-in-law. And that's exactly what happens. And she gets home to her mother-in-law, and she says, look at the bounty I have. I have all of this that God has given to me. And also, some of the lunch that the that the owner gave me, I have some of that, too. Here, take that. And Naomi is overwhelmed. And she says where have you been? In whose field were you working? And beginning in chapter 2, verse uh, 19, Ruth says, the man's name with whom I work today is Boaz. Naomi also said, and Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, may he be blessed by the Lord whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. Naomi also said to her, this man is a close relative of ours, One of our redeemers. All right, another cultural reference. Do you know what the word redeemer means in that context? It typically has two meanings. The the, the prominent one relates to property. Remember I said that God had made this provision for the poor when it came to gleaning the crops? Well, he made this other provision for the poor that if they had to sell their land, someone near, a near relative of theirs, a redeemer was obligated to buy that land from them or to buy it back for them, so that they would not be poor forever, it also has a second context though by the way, you can learn about that in leviticus twenty five It has a second context which you can learn about in numbers twenty five and there is also this sense of when someone is widowed, when an Israelite woman is widowed, that her that, that the the dead husband's brother has an obligation to step into the shoes of his dead brother. And sire a child by that woman, and take that woman in, and provide for her, and care for her. And you see, two—you will see two of those things going on in this very story. So Naomi's really excited, and she says, uh, "She says he is one of our redeemers." And Ruth says, "Yeah, he told me I could keep working near the young men. Is that what he said? What did he say? Who, she, who should she still work with? Be by the young women. I've told, I've told the Ben not to not to touch you. You stick near the young women." okay, Ruth's young, and she goes, yeah, he told me I could keep working with the young men, and Naomi goes, no, 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 it is good, my daughter, that you go out with his young women, lest in another field you be assaulted, and so she continues to go out with the young women, and this goes on for about two months, multiple harvests, different kinds of crops that are being harvested, and then chapter three picks up, and Naomi, the mother-in-law, says, all right, Ruth, we're going to make our move. Tonight, Boaz, our near, our near redeemer, is going to be at the threshing floor working. Do you know what the threshing floor is? Some of you folks who know Bible history or agriculture better than I do will be able to say this, but it's, a, it's, it's sort of like this community area where it's, I don't know if it's cement, but it's some rock hard surface or the sand is beaten down to be hard. And it's built in such a way that the wind will come in and it has a structure over it. The wind will come in and you can throw the grain up and so the wheat separates from the chaff, the seed separates from the, from the shell. It is a way, it, it, it's, it's technology in, in, the, in the day of the judges, all right? Dirty work, imagine trying to breathe in all of that. You're sweating, it's hot, things are hard, and that's where Boaz is working. And Naomi says, Boaz is on the threshing floor tonight. When he goes to bed, this is what I want you to do. Chapter three, verse four. When he lies down, I said, go to bed. By the way, he's laying on the stone or cement or hard sand, whatever it is. When he lies down, observe the place where he lies. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down, and he will tell you what to do. And Ruth replied, all that you say I will do. And so that's exactly what she did. She goes up to the threshing floor, and she sees him get something to eat, get something to drink. He lies down and goes to sleep. And in the dark, it says, she softly makes her way over toward him, And then uh, chapter 3, verse 7, she uncovered his feet and lay down. At midnight, the man was startled and turned over, and behold, a woman lay at his feet. He said, who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your servant. Remember what she said last time? I'm just a foreigner. I'm not your servant. Now she says, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. All right, I want to pause there for just a second. And and don't let your Western mind and the perversion of our culture interfere with what's happening right here. Who thinks Boaz smelled good? Who thinks Boaz had any energy? Who thinks Boaz's feet were attractive? Threshing and threshing and threshing. When Ruth comes to his feet, she does so with a level of humility that I don't think many of us can fully comprehend. And when she says, spread your wings over me, that is not a sexual, hear this, that is not a sexual reference. I don't want to soil the reputation of this fine woman. In fact, it's the same word that that Boaz had used when he prayed for her. Do you remember? Chapter 2 verse 12, the Lord repay you for what you have done and a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings, remember I said note that word, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. It's like a covering. What is she doing? She is so vulnerable. She has nothing in this community other than his grace and her mother-in-law. And she is saying, you are the redeemer. Cover me, put your protection over me take me as yours, not physically, not to gratify a sexual urge, but in the most beautiful of ways to protect this vulnerable woman. And back to chapter 3, Boaz says, my daughter, verse 11, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask. For all my fellow townsmen know that you A worthy woman. She is just a wonderful human being and everybody knows it. And now it is true that I am a redeemer. Yet there is a redeemer nearer than I. Remain tonight and in the morning I'm going to go up to the city gate where all the transactions take place and I'm going to get this all squared away. And then he says something beautiful. He says you keep sleeping in the dark get up and leave when no one can see you. Again in our Western culture, we have one mindset about what that means. I think he's protecting her honor and dignity because nothing happens because the word of God says that she laid at his feet, the smelly threshing floor feet all night. Chapter four opens up. Picture the scene. It's the gate. In that culture, that's where the deals get done. That is the place of commerce, business. And he waits for ten elders to get there, and the elders are lined up at the gate, and there's Boaz. And he sees the nearer Redeemer coming. He's the one who has kind of the right of first refusal on the property. And he says, Nearer Redeemer, come sit with me. Have you heard that Elimelech is dead? that his wife Naomi is back in town and she is selling that piece of property that she has and you have a right of first refusal. You are the nearest redeemer. Do you want it? (laughs) Yes, I do want that piece of property as a matter of fact. I'll take it. And Boaz said, awesome, awesome. Oh, by the way, chapter 4, verse 5. Then Boaz said, the day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire... Interesting word. You also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the widow of the dead. Well, then, verse 6, the Redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption for yourself, for I cannot redeem it. He was willing to have the piece of property. That was land. He was not willing to have the piece of property. That was a Moabite woman they strike a deal. Boaz is going to purchase the property. And then he says this, verse 9, chapter 4, verse 9, then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, you are witnesses this day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Chilion and to Malon. Those are the two sons, the dead sons. I have bought to be my wife. He says, also Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Malon, I have bought to be my wife. And by the way, if you just follow, sort of sidebar here, if you just follow the different ways Ruth is characterized in this book, she's a foreigner. She's not even your servant. Okay, she's your servant. And now Boaz makes this very public declaration, this woman will be my wife. It's beautiful. Chapter four goes on. Boaz and Ruth get married. They have a baby. Naomi is overjoyed. And the line of David, the king, is continued. The the promise that there would be a, that the scepter would never depart from the line of Judah, is, is continued. That this woman Ruth will play a role in in extending the line to King David, and ultimately, as we read in Matthew chapter one, that it will take take us to the line of Jesus Christ Himself. Take a big breath. We discovered a whole book of the Bible, and what? Eight minutes, I hope. (laughs) All right, now I want you to think about this for just a second. Doesn't that storyline sound familiar? Especially folks born in the late 60s, early 70s who had Hallmark movies on TV a lot when you were kids. Sounds a little bit like a Hallmark movie, doesn't it? Local girl, bad shape, hits rough times, somebody extends her some love and grace, and boom, happily ever after life. Sounds like that, doesn't it? And I want to caution you to not step into the same trap I have stepped into for years reading this book because that's not what's happening here. This is not a story about a worthy woman who gets recognized because of her worth. That misses the significance entirely of the book and entirely of Ruth's place in the genealogy of Jesus. All right, so here's, where, here's the big conclusion. So what is the significance of Ruth? of her as a person, of this book, of her in the line of Jesus. Get ready. Ruth is an alien. All right, not the kind of alien that you're thinking, right? She's not from outer space. She's not from Mars. She is not Jewish. She is a foreigner. And more importantly, she's not just a foreigner. She's a particular type of foreigner. She's a Moabite you know about the Moabites? Let me tell you a little bit about the history of Moab. The name of the country, Moab, is named after a man named Moab. If you thought Judah and Tamar last week were uncomfortable to talk about, let me tell you about the birth of Moab, how he came to be. Do you remember I said that Lot accompanied his uncle Abraham, and they left that land Ur of the Chaldeans, and they went down into the promised land, Well, eventually Lot and Abraham have a little bit of a conflict and Abraham goes his way and Lot goes his way. Lot ends up in that famous city, Sodom. God brings down wrath upon Sodom and Lot and his family are fleeing the city and as they're fleeing the city, do you remember Lot's wife turns to look at the city and my view is that she turns because she misses it as God's bringing judgment upon it and she turns into a pillar of salt. And to make up For the loss of their mother, the two daughters of Lot conspire to have their father impregnate them. And one of them, the first one, is a boy named Moab. Kind of an inauspicious way to enter the world, wouldn't you think? I also mentioned that the Israelites fled out of Egypt... Well, as they were fleeing out of Egypt, there was a particular group of people that did not help them, would not provide them food and would not provide them water. Do you know who that was? It was Moab. It wasn't only Moab, but it was Moab. And not only did they not provide them with food or water, the king of Moab, and this begins in Numbers chapter 22 and goes through chapters 23 and 24, the king of Moab hires a prophet. Let that sink in for just a second. Hires a prophet, to come and call down curses from God on the people Israel. The prophet Balaam. And Balaam goes and inquires of God, and God says, I'm not going to curse them. I'm going to bless them. And you have to do the very same thing. Three different times this king of Moab tries to call down curses upon Israel. And three different times, Balaam says no, because God tells him no. Well, what The king of Moab could not accomplish through conquest or cursing. He could accomplish through corruption. I mentioned that that was Numbers 22, 23, and 24. Let me tell you how Numbers 25 starts. While Israel lived in Shittim, the people began to whore with the daughters of Moab. These invited the people to the sacrifices of their gods and the people ate and bowed down to their gods. So Israel yoked himself to Baal of Peor. That's a false god, the god of Moab. Actually, it wasn't even the god of Moab forever. There's another one, Chemosh, which you'll see throughout the Bible. They yoked themselves to the Baal of Peor and the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. Oh, it was definitely kindled against Israel, but it was also kindled against Moab. How do we know that? Because if you go to Deuteronomy chapter 23, listen to this from verse 3. No Moabite may enter the assembly of the Lord. Even to the 10th generation, none of them may enter the assembly of the Lord forever. Why? Because they did not meet you with bread and with water on the way when you came out of Egypt. We talked about that one. And second, because they hired against you Balaam, the son of Beor, to curse you but the Lord your God would not curse you. I would bless you. And then listen to what he says. Listen to what God says to Israel in Deuteronomy 23, verse six. You shall not seek their peace, Moab's peace. You shall not seek their peace or their prosperity all your days forever. When we get to the book of Psalms twice in Psalm 60 and Psalm 128, I think. There are two references to Moab. They're the same references. God says, Moab is my wash basin. That doesn't sound so bad, right? One commentator read, a modern translation of that might be, Moab is my toilet bowl. And so I hope that it starts to resonate within your mind that Naomi does not just waltz into Bethlehem in Judah with a woman who had fled Judah to go to Moab. To Moab. Well, no wonder her husband died. No wonder her children died. And she has the gall to come back here with that woman? Naomi does not. Or Ruth does not just walk into Bethlehem and in Judah and begin to wow people with her integrity, begin to wow people with her character, begin to wow people with her work ethic or her care for her mother-in-law. That's not the place where she starts. She is going to be there on the receiving end of bias, of prejudice, of scorn, of hatred, you name it. And the religious people are going to look and say, yeah, God did that. God did that. Don't you leave Bethlehem and Judah and go down to Moab. Because he'll get you too. You see how that is the, probably the mindset at play, at least among some, when Naomi goes back? or, go, or when, when Ruth accompanies Naomi back to Judah, I spent a long time pointing out that Naomi was really trying to say to Ruth and the other sister-in-law who had been widowed, stay in Moab. And I think that can be explained at least in part because of her love for her daughters-in-law. But it does not take much of imagination much of an imagination to begin to think that what Naomi also is doing is she's protecting herself. If you are familiar with your Old Testament scriptures, then you know how sometimes God meted out wrath and quickly on people who fraternized with nations he didn't like so much. Maybe it also explains why Boaz and Naomi also told Ruth, they both told Ruth, steer clear of the young men. The reason I was focused on this thing about the word touch is because I think it is possible that they were saying, stay away from those boys. You you heard me read that list of what the culture was like. Stay away from those boys. They're not trustworthy. They might do something to you. But in my mind, it is just as likely that they were saying, stay away from those boys. They beat Moabite women. They don't like your type. You tracking? And in the same way, the nearer redeemer who says, no, I'm happy to take the property, but I'm not happy to take this, uh, this woman, Ruth. Yeah, it complicates his it? It narrative a lot. What do you think it does to Thanksgiving and Christmas? Hey, honey, I brought another wife home. Yeah, it's Ruth from Moab. You remember Moab? really gets things very complicated. You see, Ruth is in hostile territory. She is the consummate outsider. She is weakness personified. She is without hope. She's on her own, totally isolated. So what does she need? What does she need? She need a job? education, place to live. That's what we in our culture would do. She needs a redeemer. She needs a redeemer. Someone who can redeem her under the law. The law would condemn Ruth. No Moabite can come into the assembly up to the 10th generation You cannot seek the peace of a Moabite. You cannot seek the prosperity of a Moabite. The law would condemn her. She needs a redeemer to save her from the condemnation the law brings. Do you get it? Do you see that? Do you see how that superficial reading of this worthy woman does not do justice to the awesomeness of a great God who makes the way to overcome the condemnation of the law with a redeemer who fulfills it, who fulfills the law. Boaz is that redeemer. But all he does in fulfilling the law, in buying the property, in taking this woman and making her his wife, he does that in for one woman. And it's just a foreshadowing, a picture of what the Lord Jesus Christ does for the world. Boaz knows Ruth before she knows him. Do you remember? I said, said, he goes up and says, who is that? Boaz shows kindness to her when she has no idea who he is. Boaz acknowledges how much he knows about Ruth before he's ever talked to her. Remember? Remember what he said? I know what you did, how you left your, mo- your mother and your father and your nation to come with your mother-in-law. He knows her. He protects her. Boaz provides for her. And when she humbly seeks his covering, he does not cast her out. He fulfills the law on her behalf and makes her his own. That's what Jesus does for us. This is not a baby in a manger. This is the Savior come from heaven who makes himself totally vulnerable for us to save us. Jesus knows us before we know him. Jesus shows kindness to us when we have no idea who he is. And in my case, it's when I was like, that. Jesus protects us. Jesus provides for us. And when we humbly seek his covering, when we humbly seek his covering, he does not cast us out. That is grace. Jesus makes the outsider an insider. And he says to the foreigner, I'm not going to educate you. I'm not going to give you retraining. I'm not going to provide you some temporary housing. I'm going to save you because I love you. She humbly comes to his feet and asks for his covering. Let me ask you, have you done that? Have you humbly gone to the feet of Jesus and said, My reputation is irrelevant. My accomplishments mean nothing. My merit is filthy rags in the eyes of God. Have you done that? Have you come humbly to the feet of your Redeemer and asked for His covering? Because if you have not, do you realize you're an alien? You're a Moabite. you're a Gentile, you have no inheritance in God because of your family. I don't care how faithful your parents are. You may be living in the right town. She was living in Bethlehem, of all places. You may be gleaning from the right field, Boaz's field. You may be sitting with the right people, Boaz's young women who were working there, you may be living with someone who is in God's family, Ruth, and you may be of outstanding character and of outstanding reputation. But until you humble yourself before Jesus and ask him to redeem you, you are a Moabite in the eyes of God. And as we enter this Christmas season, as we prepare for his coming, have you prepared your heart to humble yourself before him? To bow at his feet, the feet of Jesus. I was reading from the Gospel of Luke this morning, and just in scanning a couple of my favorite passages, I found, I think, five references to people coming and being at the feet of Jesus. If you have not done that, you've got to get that straight. If you have done that, then I want you to rejoice. Because Jesus takes the Moabite and makes her his bride. Jesus takes the outsider and makes them the insider. Jesus takes us, sinners who humbly come before him, and he makes us his children. Isaiah 49 is one of the most beautiful passages. I think it's 49, 16-ish. And, and, and Isaiah says, Would a mother forget her nursing child? Yes, yes even she would forget. But I, God, will never forget you. See, I have engraved your name on the palm of my hands. He is not afraid of your sin. You are his. And in this Christmas season, please rest in that. And I just want to close with this. There are other aliens out there. There may be aliens in here. Foreigners, sorry. I guess two things about that. One is how are we treating them? Christ is supposed to be dwelling in us. Are we being his hands and feet? As we see, I guess, a Hindu temple or a Hindu school is going to be built in this community. I know there are a couple of Muslim houses of worship in Frisco now, or maybe the other one's in McKinney, and talk about aliens, I mean, who is building our communities as this town grows grows faster and faster? Is there somebody to whom we could show the love of Jesus? Somebody who is even more deserving than Ruth the Moabite? pray this Christmas that we would be a people who are not only redeemed by Christ but that we are remade by Jesus and that we might walk in his ways and that we might bring him glory. Better yet, that we might reflect his glory by the transformation he makes in us because of what he has done for us, undeserving sinners who have come humbly to him and said, please cover me, and that we might go out to a hurting, dark world to share that there is a God in heaven who loves them, who dies for them, who has engraved their names on the palms of his hand. I hope we remember that at Christmas this year. Would you pray with me? God, you are great. You are greatly to be praised. And while we honor the memory of Ruth because she is a worthy woman, we honor you far and above that and praise you because you are a great God who breathes life into death, who comes for a sinful people like us. And we pray, Lord God, remake us into your image and shine your light beautifully and powerfully here in this building, in this community, in this state, and in this nation, that we might be a nation that praises your name with all of our hearts. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.